And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above with the Good Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stratton, Gary Craig Wolf on the never-ending Coochie Pucker! And we're up to, we're up to episode, not 7,421 or 400, something like this. 491 million. Yes, yeah. none of which have been edited, which probably which horrified my youngest daughter, child the other day. When we started doing this, podcasts were like an artisanal uh, kind of radio, and they were they were generally unedited. They were the, the the sophistication that has gone into podcasts, the production values, the pre-planning, the seven episodes with guest stars, and that sort of thing. All that happened after we started. So so we have the advantage of being you know, the Flintstones of podcasters. We were doing it before the technology was caught up. Although it's not our first choice to describe it this way, we are the mimeographed fanzine of podcasts. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a great thing. Well, it's, it, it, it's not, but you mentioned mimeographed fanzines. There's something we should briefly mention, even though I don't know if you've ever met him and I only have met him a few times, but one of the oldest fans in science fiction has passed away this week, Earl Korshak. Yes who founded Shasta Press, which published... Uh, it, was, it was the first hardcover science fiction specialty press, I believe. Um, it would have been... If, if it wasn't that, it was one of them, definitely, yeah, because Gnome Press was around then, too, I think. Um, and they, didn't, right. they, didn't, did they publish, like, Doc Smith and all that kind of they, thing? They Shasta? did the Lensman, they did Who Goes There, they did the uh, John W. Campbell collection. Um, yep. the, the, the story that was most famously circulating about Shasta was that with money from pocketbooks, which was just becoming interested in science fiction in the early 50s, they staged a contest for the best new science fiction novel. And the winner uh, funny of the contest... Funny that story about Philip Jose Farmer losing his novel. Yes. Philip Jose Farmer submitted a novel called I O for the Flesh, which 20 years later would become Two Years Scattered Bodies Go and the whole uh, river world thing. And... Uh, he won, but he was told, and I've heard the story from Phil many times, and I've I've heard secondhand Korshak's rebuttal of it. But basically, uh, Korshak had, according to Phil, taken the money from pocketbooks and used it to support the ongoing publishing of Shasta House. So that by the time the contest was won, there wasn't any money left, and yeah. pay, and, and Phil not only didn't get paid, but Shasta House lost his manuscript, which. <laughs> For some reason, was. <laughs> well, if you've ever wondered, I guess, because I have sometimes, how would it be if you were an author and you you wrote your first draft or whatever it was or your your novel, and someone came and took it away from you and said, now you have to write it from scratch from memory? Because that's kind well, of what happened to Phil, wasn't it? It's what happened to him, and he said uh, that it probably was the best thing that happened to him. When he won that yeah. novel contest, he was a young guy. He, I don't think he'd even published The Lovers yet. came out in 53. And he said that I had to rethink this from scratch. I, I rewrote it 20 years later when I really had mastered my craft. And he said he's certain that what he wrote finally in Two Years Scattered Bodies Go was infinitely better than what that novel would have been in 1950. So his view of his career was that the novel could have been accepted, it could have been published, could have been a pot, and it would have just disappeared. Well, th this segues into, actually, I, don't, not, I, mean, I, mean, I do want to segue a little into this. This segues into, of course, the announced over the past month publication of The Last Dangerous Visions and mm -hmm. the gift of not publishing some of those older stories that perhaps should be allowed to disappear mm -hmm. into the past and you know the, the whole thing around there because it's its own interesting story but what i was going to say was I, I first of all it's plain and i want to re-say this from the social media response to earl Corsak's dying obviously he's someone who people loved very very dearly and mm. he's deeply missed but i couldn't not be amused by some of the response if only because there are some people going i thought i'd be meeting earl at conventions for many years to come i'm going he was 97 he was 97 right he was 97. I mean, this, these are people with a very loose grasp on the human lifespan. Earl did well. I mean, 97 is a hell of a, a run. Well, people simply thought he was never going to die. But uh, I remember I was introduced to him by Charles Brown. Uh, who, And even then, Charles has been dead for, what, 11 years now? Even back then, Charles would come up to me at every con and say, God, Earl is still alive. So <laughs> Well, I mean, the funny thing is, I remember uh, someone telling me that every every morning that Jack D Jack Vance would wake up after he was about ninety three or ninety four and go, "Good God, I'm still alive," you know. Yeah, right. I can understand that kind of approach. Well, there have been some so, discussion. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's it's one of the last. Uh, it's, it's part of the prehistory of fandom that's gradually disappearing. There was somebody else yeah. who I may have met named Robert Madel, who is still alive apparently in his nineties. 
and there's a the younger generation of that group of people are people like Silverberg, uh, who's what in his mid eighties. So, so the, yeah, the, the, yeah and, and, and Silverberg was a kid compared to these. So, it's 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 watching part of the history of science fiction disappear into the past, and I don't know that it means anything other than realizing that science fiction fandom is now more than 80 years old uh, in an organized form in terms of world cons um, and probably 90 years old if you count the beginnings in the pulp magazine well well definitely and you know that we are facing not only a younger generation but a younger generation after a younger generation after a younger generation you know i wonder how 22 year old me because that's about the age i was mm. when i discovered science fiction fandom and everything would respond if if I was twenty two now to these ancient history events of nineteen thirty nine world cons and everything else. They seem very, I mean, they're very distant in, in time anyway, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and feel scarcely relevant when we talk about the kind of things we're reading and the kind of books we're encountering and the things that we're passionate about. There, there are still uh, ancestral trails. But, but, you know, there are other things being talked about. I think that's true. And I think that every generation at some point probably stops reading new science fiction. I mean, when I had conversations, one or two conversations with, uh, with Korshak, very brief ones, it was clear to me that he had no interest in reading what he thought of as contemporary science fiction, which was science fiction of the 60s and 70s, let alone science fiction of the 2020s. Uh, so, so, so there's, you know, there's a there's a kind of cultural thing that has nothing to do with the fiction being read. It just has to do with the community. And the argument in favor of this, uh, the importance of this nerdy bunch of teenage boys back in the 30s is that they found a community that welcomed them, and people are still finding that in science fiction. Yeah, I mean, and hopefully it's becoming more welcoming because obviously it was nowhere near as welcoming as they wanted to think it was, no. but at least it welcomed them. Right. You know, and you know that that has changed. You know, um, I mean, I, I have this suspicion that the truth is that we all imprint on about a decade of reading, particularly if you're following chronologically along. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and so there's a period of time that might be for somebody that is the '70s more. I mean, for me, I know I'm firmly imprinted on the '80s. That was that was a a formative decade for me, age-wise, reading-wise, whatever else, and I still feel a great connection to the work that was published then and have a f- very clear feeling as, as much as I've read and followed along since. So I suppose everybody, you know, has that sort of entry level period when they, they're, they're bonding. Did you at some point decide you should go back and, and sort of study the history of the field, reading things from before your period? No, not at all. The way I encountered it was, and I think we've talked about it in the past, inevitably, mm-hmm. I'm sure, but briefly was we were, you know, publishing the, the, the for science fiction in Australia was sufficiently delayed, if you like, that the stuff that was on the shelves when I was in my teens yeah. was the stuff from the 50, 50, 40s, 50s, and 60s. So I, I was able to find full runs of recent reprints of A.E. Van Vogt and Doc Smith and whatever else. Those things were common. It was, much, it was much harder to find contemporary science fiction at that time. So it was only when I moved in, moved into the 80s and a specialist bookstore opened up here. And by that stage, I'm 21 kind of thing. And from 20 through 30, all these things are being imported. They're kind of rare and you're chasing them down. And it happens to overlap with a particular movement in the field. There was the cyberpunk mm-hmm. and Chris Martins. And there was the whole thing with the new age science fiction specials, all of which were formative for me. But the history stuff, I didn't have to because that's what I kind of, I lived through in my... I mean, I started reading science fiction when I was about eight or nine. I had a and theory about, uh, yeah. Uh, well, I probably was reading science fiction from the public library. I know I was reading science fiction from the public library. I mean, I ask it because there are some younger friends of ours, including a colleague at Locus, Karen Burnham, who uh, decided to go back and systematically catch up with the science fiction. Our, our friend Amelia Beamer did the same thing under the guidance of Charles. My theory is that a lot of people of my generation and later, this may not be as true now as it was, but it was true for a long time, uh, that science fiction appealed kind of to lower middle class readers, meaning that people like myself, who really couldn't afford to buy new books in, in, in bookstores, could go to used bookstores could go to, and buy used paperbacks. And if you're buying mm-hmm. a used paperback, you're buying a five or six year old edition of a book, which is probably 10 or 15 years old. So a lot of the books that I grew up on, some of the books in the 50s, uh, the early paperbacks, the Ballantine paperbacks, my first loyalty in science fiction, I came across those simply because I could get them cheap. 
Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's interesting what drives you. And the other big change for me was starting work with Locus. I mean, up until, you know, uh, 1997, you know, I was a normal reader, more or less. You know, mm. I read what took my fancy. I had first encountered reading Locus, which was formative in some ways in the mid 80s. And so I started reading new books based on it, you know, like they were being mm. recommended, making recommended reading lists, like a lot of people do, I think. But still reading older books as I stumbled upon them, and that was fine. But once I started reading Locus or working for Locus, that was when my reading non contemporary work died, pretty much. You know, mm-hmm. um, I started off reviewing in. It was about a five-year period when I reviewed for between 97 and 2002. And so that was, you know, sort of got me into that whole kind of thing, which, you know, you're, you're living with and have been for all this time of four or five, six books a month and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And then um, once I became reviews editor, I was keeping up. And so the idea of finding time to go back and read a book that, it, I mean, even, that even been published 10 years ago. I mean, I, I don't read stuff much. I, w- I wouldn't go back and read a book from the 90s or the 2000s even pretty much if I've missed them at the time. Mm-hmm. Because who has time? There's there's everything going forward. Well, one of the things that, uh, that I, I found myself occasionally doing would be trying to review an omnibus. For example, we, well, one of the books that I reviewed back in 2008, you reminded me of just before, was The Best of Lucia Shepard. I'd read yeah. a good deal of Lucia Shepard, but not systematically. And when those uh, uh, sort of retrospective things, I, I, I still appreciate those, and I think those are worth anybody oh, paying are. attention. Uh, because oh, absolutely one thing, it, it, it gives you a sense to, to understand and, and appreciate some of the great writers of the field who you may only have been somewhat acquainted with. Um, sometimes there'll be, uh, there, I think, uh, Centipede Press did a huge collection of Kuttner and Moore, uh, which was, uh, I'd read Kuttner and Moore in anthologies, but to read it systematically. So to some extent, uh, the kinds of things that are going on, and, and I, I would guess that Subterranean Press is doing as good a job, or at least as comprehensive a job of this as anybody, um, sure. is, is, is an excuse to read back in the field, is an excuse to go back and catch up with things that you may not have caught up. Undeniably, a <laughs> oddly, a new reprint, you know, or a new repackage, like even, like we say, when the Library of America does an omnibus or something mm. like that. It does give you a gateway into looking or finding time, which of course is not something that a normal reader has to worry about. It's a really odd thing. In fact, this is interesting. This segues into something I want to talk about anyway. Mm. And you know I want to talk about. So every at the moment I'm subscribed to a newsletter that's published by Andrew Liptak called mm. uh, Transfer Orbit. Now, I don't think I've ever met Andrew, though I will now probably find out that I have somewhere down the line. But in his latest or in one of his um Newsletters this week, I think uh, an, an issue on called Right Time, Right Book about finding mm. things to read that came out on the 27th. He talks about attending a ReaderCon panel back in the day mm. and wanting to talk about how reviewers and readers break away from the cycle of publishing to keep their approach to reviewing fresh. How do you find time to reflect on a, pro, a, a, a book, an author, their, their career, whatever else, outside of that relentless pressure. Mm-hmm. And it was something that apparently wasn't really addressed at the uh, panel that he attended at the time back at Redacon, whenever it was back in the day. And it struck me that this might be something we could spend five minutes on and actually address for Andrew should he ever listen to the Coochie podcast. I may very well have been on that panel. I don't remember. I, I, if it was at Redacon, uh, Liza might have been on it. Charles might have been on it. I don't know. I, but I was on a lot of those panels. And it's an interesting question. I, if, if I had remembered it at all, I would love to have answered it because it's one of the things that, um, that, that you do feel pressure. You do feel like the next thing is coming and you may have missed something important. Um, a related question, a, a, a book which I, I was asking myself earlier this week, um, in terms of immediacy, in terms of this week's news, what science fiction novels of the past year do I think are the most important? And I'm mm-hmm. sticking with the Ministry of the Future because I think that's important. And there's always news that's relevant to that. Sure, that's a 2020 at, book, yeah. It's a 2020 book. The last, the last year, the last oh, two years, sure, sure, sure. the last 18, the last time. But a book which I thought was a beautiful book when I read it and now I think is almost immediately crucial for readers is On Fragile Waves, the E. Lily U novel mm-hmm. about Afghan refugees. And it's, it strikes me that right now, uh, for this week and the next couple of weeks, 
that may be the most relevant science fiction book around. It may not be in, in six months. It'll still be an excellent novel, but right now it has that sense of immediacy. Um, and so, so, so part of what he was talking about, I think, in that was that you may read a book at the wrong time. You may read it under the pressure of reviewing and then years later realize either I was too generous with that book or I completely missed the point of it because you read it at the wrong time. Well, there's that. I mean, I guess this is, first of all, let, let's try to break it down a little bit. I mean, I think we both are driven slightly out of step because of where we sit in the process, but we're both driven by publishing schedules for hmm. book publishers and for the magazine that we work with. I mean, Locus comes out every month. It needs to provide coverage. It's trying to provide industry-wide coverage. Uh, publishers are putting out new books every month. There are stacks of advanced review copies coming to us digitally hmm. and then print every month we're trying to get through that and there is a kind of relentless thing of you hear a book which is I mean, it's good as well but it's, it is relentless because everything you hear a, a book gets sold a book gets delivered a manuscript shows up right. a advanced review copy shows up now you've got to review it the review's got to be timely and then it's swept away until year in review time in december comes along and we try to remember which books were interesting enough to talk about mm. well, there's very little chance uh, chance to do even though locus is probably more open to reviewing out of cycle than it used to be is a thing to, 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 to look back and go, well, we didn't really look properly at a book from April or March mm -hmm. and maybe there's something there. And then you sit down with it and take a little bit of time because I mean, one of the things that is true, I mean, well, it's true that sometimes the book's not for you and it should go to a different reviewer anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's not the right time for you to be reading a book. I mean, I had a period of time a couple of weeks ago where read five books in a week. And I thought, I can't believe I've done this. It's been ages since I've read five books mm. in a week. I am on a roll. And then every other book I hit for the next week and a half after that, I bounced off hard, read a couple of chapters. Don't think it's got anything to do with the books, everything mm. to do with me. But I attempted them. And I mean, I tried the new Monica Byrne novel that's coming out, 600 pages of Mayan SFE stuff, mm -hmm. which I think Ian Mond recommended and said was fabulous. And actually, I have to say, is beautiful written open to the book. Seems fantastic. Um, and I tried the latest Alistair Reynolds book, Inhibitor mm. Phase, and had the same reaction. It's got a, had, had a fantastic review from uh, Russell. Oh, I think it was from Russell Letson for us. Mm. Um, and I'm sure it's great. I'm sure I'll love it in another few weeks or another month. Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to step out. And I think it's actually pretty important that we try to find a mechanism to do it so that we can give books a fair chance. Because right now we've got a thing, and I think there's a, a real push where we are to be more aware of what we're bringing in to review, mm. where it's coming from, uh, trying to be more aware and more diverse and whatever else about what we're doing. But there's also that thing of being able to take a, take a breath, take time to go back and actually look at stuff and make sure you haven't missed things. And I mean, a little bit that, that can come in your review, but it's hard to find that in the process. And I think it, it slightly breaks how you read when you're doing it. You know, I think if you've got a relentless pressure to do, pr pressure to do four, five, six reviews a month. That's that's pretty relentless. I mean, one thing I've noticed is we're currently going through a a slow but but determined recruitment process for new reviewers at Locus right mm -hmm. now. We're trialing three or four new reviewers right at the moment, uh, which I'm looking forward to seeing what they'll do. But when I ask them the volume of books they want to review, they're all like one or two a month maybe, not four or five or six in the proper column. Which, which I we've can done understand that. I can understand that uh, impulse entirely. You don't mm -hmm. want the, I mean, I tend to think it, it doesn't always work out this way, but in my mind, there's about a 10-day period every month when I don't have to review for Locus. I'm reading mystery novels. I'm reading nonfiction. I'm reading whatever it is. And and there's a, there, there's a distinct sense of liberation in reading something that you don't have to write anything about. Um, which yeah, I think I think you need a diet of reading. I mean, that's what I used to think about before I did this, and my experience in the last couple of months kind of absolutely agree uh, coincides with that. You know, uh, I read I've started reading City on Fire, which is a Don Winslow novel, mm -hmm. uh, a cr crime novel. Fell straight into it. I'd been sent a story submission by someone that was hard science fiction, had lots of terminology and odd construction in it, which, all of which was fine, but I found myself bouncing off it because I just didn't want to process that at that time. And I needed to like, come back to it at a different point. Well, I mean, th this, this has a lot to do with what, I guess what reading means to us when we're doing it, because one of the things you're talking about when you bounce off of something and something and dive into something else, part of that I think is whiplash. Uh, I can mm -hmm. see that, as a matter of fact, one of the books I'm reading right now happens to be the year's best science fiction volume two, which is edited by yourself. And it's, 
It's full of very good stories, but I will find myself reading a very entertaining, fast-moving, funny story, and the next one is dense, hard SF, and I'm and, and the whiplash just causes me, frankly, to skip it and go on to find something else. So I'm trying to kind of stir the pot. I know as an anthologist, you have to put together the ingredients that make some kind of sense, so that there's variety in it. As a reader, I'm thinking. I can't just go from one really funny story to one incomprehensibly, well, I don't want to say incomprehensible. <laughs> the comprehension comes only after you're two-thirds of the way through the story. Yeah. It's not fair. So I don't want to do that much work after I just had fun. Now, that's, that's just reading an anthology. You take that at the level of the novel. And let's say uh, this hasn't exactly happened, but uh, let's say I just read a maniacal Lavi Tidhar novel and I come across, which 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 are enormous amounts of fun. But let's face it, they're they're, they're uh, gonzo. They're 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 partly nuts in many ways, in good ways. And then and then let's say I have I don't know an Ada Palmer novel, which is much more intellectual and much more serious and much more um, moving from one to the other. Is not a natural movement in reading. It's not what I would be doing mm. if I were choosing these books entirely on my own. And and of course they're they're. Longer, I'm sure there's a difference between a pop single and a symphony, isn't it? Right? It's like, yeah, when, when you've got sort of a whole bunch of short stories, they're three minute pop songs in yeah. a way. They're they're short little pieces, not the amount of you know, not sort of two days of your time spent reading, you know, through something you want to be thoughtful about and consider and all that kind of thing. I know that my urge with the anthologies quite often is to manage that rhythm. Now, we could argue at times whether it works well or whether I do it well enough, but I'm looking to give you, you know, a run-up. Like, here's an easy story to read so mm-hmm. that you've got your... Because this is like, I mean, to some degree what you do, what, any, what I assume anybody who's doing anthology work does, is you edit in response to the way you read. I can understand and that. So there's a thing where I would read, you know, something quick and easy to read, to get my read, you know, my, my reading going. Uh-huh. And then you hit something, I'm going, okay, well, now I'm alert, running, everything's right, get through the chewy story, and then on to the next thing. And sometimes the light things are much chewier than you think anyway, but still. And so it would be the the, the simple metaphor was, it was always best to read a Gene Wolfe novel after a Terry Pratchett novel. But that, I can understand that, I think. Um, you know, because Terry Pratchett novel gets you going. I mean, you, you can just, re- I could read Terry Pratchett for 100 years. Right. And Gene Wolfe, you want to stop, you want to think about Though you don't want to overthink, I began to. I realized after a while, you know, you you, you can get lost in thinking you have to overthink Gene Wolfe. I believe. Well, I mean, part part and of that so, problem, yeah, part of the problem is 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 that there's a lot of a lot of texture and subtext and sub subtext, but some of the pressure comes from Gene Wolfe readers who tell you you have to really, really, really chew it over. The best the best advantage is still Neil Gaiman's advice, the best advice, which is just let let the story take you where it's taking you. And if you follow the story, it will all make sense. Uh, but following a Gene Wolfe story still requires more attention than following a Terry Pratchett story, even though there are those subtexts in Terry Pratchett also. It's just that the entertainment level on the surface is, um, is, is, is I think is that's so... partly true. I, I think there's something about there, there's a different difference in writing style. I mean, I will say, for example, it took me four, five attempts to get through Shadow of the Torturer. Hmm. Um, Ended up loving it when I got through the last time, but I read the beginning to it thinking like, and there was this element, well, I, I, be, I began the beginning thinking, this is an important, significant, dense book that I need to think about it. And I'm reading mm. it because it is, and I, I air quotes, worthy, right? It, it's a serious, worthy, important book. And so you should read it. And that's a really unfair weight to put on any book, even if it is those yeah. things. And it's kind of strangled my enjoyment of it until I could get away from that and just relax and read the book that it was. Which is which is the exact uh, advice that Neil gives to people. And it's the advice that Gene gave to people for that matter. He said he, he was uh, he was well aware of the fact that there, the, the, there, were, there was a density in the book that was going to off-put some people. But his argument was always that the story, even if you don't get all the bits of it, the story will carry you through. And it will. The, the advantage is on the second reading and the third reading, or the advantage is by the time you get to the Sword of the Lictor, you're realizing things that happened back in the Shadow of the Torture yeah, yeah. mean something different. So that kind of uh, putting together an enormous jigsaw puzzle is part of the pleasure. That's not the same pleasure as reading an adventure novel. It's not 
uh, the same pleasure as reading something like Old Man's War, which is fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. but but to get back to your anthology, I, 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 it's not a criticism, but if you're you're going to give us a good run up, you're going to give us an enjoyable story. Sometimes a story we're not expecting. I mean, one of the things that surprised me in this year is not to get into it. We can talk about it later. But you know, I see a Yoon Ha Lee story, and I think, okay, this is going to be some thinking work going in. This is going to be an intellectual, tough-minded, militaristic, rigorously logical story. And it's about a mermaid who wants to be an astronaut. Uh, and it's utterly sweet. It's utterly, it's, it's one of those stories you just run through and think, okay, that's an enormous amount of fun. And then I'm, I'm looking at your table of contents, and there's a Max Berry story, which is also very funny. Um, and eventually you're going to get to something which I'm not going to, mentioned, which which I kind of bounced off of a little bit. Partly, yeah, you're giving us a run-up to the more chewy stories. Partly, it's a little bit like Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown. You're already, you're running for it, and now you think this is going to be another story, and suddenly you're flat on your back wondering, what am I reading? So you're causing a crisis of, crisis of confidence now, Gary. You're <laughs> undermining my entire theory. I might, I might have to give up this anthology gig after all. Well, it works both ways. I mean, it's... Um, it does. On the, on the other hand, if you start with a really dense story, uh, then there's a sense of kind of liberation when you go into something yeah. funny afterwards. Um, yeah. Well, well, in the project that I've just finished, uh, which is called Tomor- uh, Tomorrow's Parties, it's the next uh, installment in the in MIT Press's 12 Tomorrow's series, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a, I guess you'd call it about how we'll go, go about living in the Anthropocene in the next hundred years. And the idea with 12 Tomorrows is that you get 12 creators. There's 10 stories, uh-huh. an interview, and an artist, right? So we've got the artist sorted out. James Bradley of our of our group of friends uh, interviewed Kim Stanley Robinson f- for, for us, which is actually great. It's a very interesting piece. But I came up to the, you know, like the opening story for this book, and the opening story in, in, in the book is written by Meg Ellison, uh, uh-huh. and I think it's great. But it's a light piece. It's fun. It's interesting, and it's set sort of not too far in the future. And there are drones at a baseball game delivering hot dogs. Mm-hmm. And the editor I deal with at MIT was going, "Well, this seems pretty light to be opening. Uh, I think this sto- you know, the story further on, which is much darker and gnarlier, is the kind of thing we should open." And I'm like, "I just don't think readers want to start there. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's me, but I kind of think tonally, you want the you want that invitation in. I always feel like I mean, I remember saying to Ellen Kushner years ago. Yeah, an anthology in some ways is a little bit like a seduction. You know, you're mm. saying, come in, read what I'm doing. You know, I mean, there used to be that, or there's a theory that the way you sequence an anthology is that, you, you know, the, the tentpole theory, you pick the three best stories, whichever yeah. one you think they are. You put the probably the best one in the middle, the second best one at the front, the thir- third best one at the, at the end, roughly, the kind of thing. Yeah. And I always figured that that was a fairly dumb theory because, first of all, best is subjective and i've over the years found right. many many times that people don't agree about that second of all you i mean a, a novelist wouldn't build their story that way they're looking to engage you one way or another so so what you want is the most engaging story that you're going to have at the front and then you know the, the, so i think the most immersive one towards the back and one with action towards the middle, right? Because you're trying to get people moving through the book. Those yeah. sorts of things, that kind of response. It's one of the reasons why generally if I have a project that has a Neil Gaiman short story in it, I will open with it. Mm-hmm. Because Neil, for whatever other strengths he has, and he has many, uh, has an enormously welcoming authorial voice. Yes. Very seductive authorial voice when he writes. And so someone like that is what you want at the front. Right? You want someone who brings you into whatever the thing is. And I've always sequenced that way. So it's interesting that 12 Tomorrow's series, or the whole MIT series is interesting in that uh, each volume is supposed to, I believe, represent uh, alternative versions of, of some of the same issues, uh, the, the different ways of looking at the future, but not just random science fiction. In other words, there is some focus to each volume. And no, I think that's become the way. The first okay. four of them or so were just like, here's great new science fiction ideas okay. that connect to tech. The last three or four, you know, entanglements from Sheila Williams, right? Makeshift from Gideon Litchfield, and a couple others are, are that way. Yeah, they seem but to yeah, have right. more. They more have. Focused. I think they've seen that they, they they want to respond to themes and connect that to technology in life because I think that in a day to day life, how 
we're going to tell stories about the sort of technology we're encountering and how it, it changes how we live. One of the things that, um, that, that occurs to me about choosing stories for something along those lines and choosing stories, you're talking about the Anthropocene, for example, which is an era that exists really indefinitely into the past, probably, uh, and mm-hmm. indefinitely into the future. So that's, that's, that's a, a, a pretty big order. Um, but the other thing I was wondering about, and I was this, these thoughts were popping up when I was reading your year's best and reading some stories from another year's best. Are there science fiction stories or science fiction novels that are essentially so contemporary in terms of the actual science fiction content that they wouldn't have made sense as recently as, say, 15 years ago? Um, I'll give you an example. You mentioned drones delivering hot dogs. Okay, drones is, is a technology that seems ubiquitous now. It seems inevitable. All Amazon is going to be delivering drones. Our food is going to come to us in drones. Drones are already in warfare. Um, there were not many drones in science fiction before 20 years ago. Maybe. I mean, they've probably been, been subsetted into some form of robot kind of approach, I guess. They're, 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 they're robots and that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm not talking about... Um, the specific technology. For example, one idea which I thought, okay, maybe this is only a, a, a contemporary science fiction idea that wouldn't have made any difference, wouldn't have made no sense uh, 15, 20 years ago. Same about virtual reality. But then I thought, wait a minute. And Arthur Clarke's The City in the Stars, it opens with a scene of virtual reality. He hadn't worked out the techniques. He hadn't worked out the technology. He hadn't worked out the idea of cyberspace. But the idea of somebody in an immersive artificial environment has been in science fiction for what seventy sure. years now, at least. Um, yeah. So it's very difficult to think of anything um, that uh, is completely new. The only thing I can think of is science fiction based so heavily in information technology that it wouldn't have made much sense a few years ago. The idea. What? Uh, no, I was just thinking. Probably the only thing that I can think of, and it's not a, really a written thing, is we science fiction never really predicted social media and the interaction through the through the internet that's true uh there well there are versions of it like i yeah. said you can you can go all the way back to uh the machine stops the em forster story where people communicate only on televisions uh but that's kind of an anomaly and again he didn't work out the details of it uh i think the idea of um mixed reality which is becoming more and more important enhanced reality and that sort of thing is something I don't think you saw much of earlier. Or if you saw it, it was essentially a fantasy trope. You, what, no. what we now call mixed reality was essentially the theme of a movie like uh, Who Who Killed Roger Rabbit. The novel was yeah. Who Censored Roger Rabbit. I think the movie was Who Killed Roger Rabbit. I don't know. Um, framed. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. So, 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 so I'm not certain that there are any new ideas. I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is... Uh, a lot of the conceptions that we now view as the result of new technologies have been in science fiction. The science fiction has been a, so far ahead of the technology that a Clark or or even a Ray Bradbury, who didn't even bother to worry about the technology. But the Velt was essentially a virtual reality environment with real tigers in it. Um, I, I wonder if if if, uh, if I wonder if how a book like Aurora would have read fifty years ago. Interesting. The Tim Stanley Robinson book about yeah. you know, and the reason I ask that is because when I think about some things, like I think there are a lot of things that we're dealing with right now in science fiction, which are extrapolatable from previous science fiction half, half mm. a century ago, even though it may be more extreme. It wouldn't be utterly incomprehensible or alien. But I wonder if the impact of real science experience in the solar system and the universe beyond showing it to be as distant and as hostile and hard to access as it is, if that would be more alien to science fiction of the 30s, 40s, 50s, those readers, than you know anything else? Uh, it, it, it probably would be. I mean, uh, I, I guess I'm trying to make a distinction between the science part of science fiction and, and the fiction part of it, in that the fiction, it's, it's, it's difficult to come up with a science fiction plot that hasn't been there before. You know, Heinlein yeah. had this his famous dictum that the little tailor, what was it, the little tailor, boy meets girl, and the man who learned better were his three plot forms. And you could basically reduce a lot of stories to those formulas even today. Uh, but the specific technologies surrounding them uh, can be written in such a way that um, that a reader 20 or 30 years ago, even if they figured out the out, 
outlines of the story, couldn't figure out what was going on. Uh, one of the one of the stories that struck me as being very much uh, along these lines. Let me see, what was it? The Carl Carl Schroeder story, the suicide of our mm-hmm. trouble. I don't think anybody 15 years ago could have made heads or tails of that. No, no. And he also wrote a, a terrific story about Bitcoin uh, a couple of years back. Um, yeah. And I wonder how they, people would have interpreted that. I don't think anybody. I, I really do. How could anybody have imagined blockchain? I can't imagine it even now when I have it explained to me at least <laughs> once a week. That's just because we're over a certain age, Gary. It's but possible. Yeah, no, I, t- I totally, I, I totally, there's stuff happening like that that does make sense. Let, let me ask you this, to, to circle a little bit back towards to Andrew Liptak's question, which we never yeah. really settled, right? and I would kind of like to. Yeah, let's get back to it. Can you think of an instance, first of all, where in the last year or two, you've been able to experience a reasonably contemporary science fiction or fantasy book outside of the, the mechanics of reviewing that you've enjoyed more because you have? It's very rare that I'm going to read a book that I don't review, and something um, something is in the, in the back of my mind. And if I keep thinking, it's going to there. There were a couple um, there, and and they're books that I read partly. Okay, one of them. Okay, here's an example, although it's not exactly a fair example. Uh, but when I was um, looking at um, P. Jelly Clark's the 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 Jen novella, I'd not read the early Most novellas. Okay, the, the, you mean the the tram of uh, Cairo, the, the tram yeah, of the the, the, the haunting of tram Cairo one hundred one or whatever it was, and oh, I read that realizing I'm only doing this so I can catch up with his sort of trilogy. It's it's really the yeah, 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 yeah. part, of it. yeah. And it was just a lot of fun because I I don't have to do anything but have fun with this story. Um, yeah, I have to keep some things in mind that I'll want to refer back to later, but uh, that's the sort of thing. There is a, occasionally there's been a, a when I was more ambitious and I would be offering to review the fourth novel in a quartet, and I hadn't read the first three, was Charles used to make me do this. Um, I I remember distinctly, this is many years ago, the fourth volume of Susie McKee Charnas's The Whole Fast Chronicles was coming out. And by by then, I knew Susie. I knew she was a good writer. I'd not read the, I'd I'd read the third one for some reason, but I hadn't read Walk to the End of the World or uh, the second one, whose title is. I went back and I read, which one? Was it Mother Tongues? Mother Tongues. That's doesn't maybe anyway. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so I went back and I read the first couple, and I, they they were just terrific. I mean, this was a this was a whole kind of really uh, powerful, uh, angry feminist science fiction, which I sh- I'd know I'd known was there. I'd known uh, how important it was, and it really was important to read those first two novels to find out what she was doing in the fourth novel. But still, reading them was just fun. I'm still yeah. trying to think of something even more recent. Mother Lines. Than, uh, oh, I want to just interject. Yeah. Walk to the End of the World, Mother Lines, The Furies, and the book you must have been reviewing was The Conqueror's Child. The Conqueror's Child, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so there is Just that. so we don't leave that error on the floor for later on. Right. Have you had... But yeah, uh, I mean, look. Of course, you don't have to review things. You, you can read whatever you I want. I don't have to review them. I just have to be across them, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and so I'm watching the flow as much as anything, whilst also trying to read enough to keep up with it and trying to have some kind of an idea of what's contemporary. My reading flow is more on the short fiction side where mm. I get dragged along by that and about the somewhat inexorable, welcome but inexorable arrival of the next issue of FNSF and Analog and FNSF yeah. and um, Clark's World and Lightspeed and Tor and da-da-da-da. And that kind of drags you along in its own momentum. So it's not entirely dissimilar. And there's a feeling of, you know, sort of, uh, I would imagine that, the short fiction reviewers who work with us would feel similarly that um, you're kind of pushed by that process, you know, and that kind of controls what you're doing at any given time in terms of your reading. I feel for me, there's like a little eddy pool in time in between about January and March where I'm allowed to read Mm. whatever I want. And that's when I go off and now read mystery novels and odd science fiction novels from the last couple of years, maybe that I'm trying to catch up on. But I think, I think that, that just Francis, yeah. I thought of the one I was trying to think of a few minutes ago and mm-hmm. for no reason other than uh, I'd heard so much about it. I'd never reviewed anything by Martha Wells at all. And I decided yeah. I should read some of the murder bots. Mm-hmm. And it was just enormous amounts of fun. And they're terrific. I, uh, I, I would love to have reviewed them at the time. I, don't regret that I didn't because they certainly have been well enough received. But so there are things like that out there. On the other hand, um, if somebody 
who I like has started a four volume series of something that uh, I'm not going to get a chance to review, I might have a hard time fitting that in. Yes. I I should say one of the books that Andrew refers to in his newsletter as being one that he read spontaneously outside of its thing was the latest Becky Chambers novella, A Psalm for the Wild Built, Mm -hmm. which is just out from Tor.com. And I read the same thing for pretty much the same reason, probably a month or two earlier in digital format. There was no particular reason for me to read it. It's far too long to put into a year's best. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe it's not even structured in a way that I would put it into a year's best because it's part of a cycle of stories and doesn't necessarily, in my opinion, stand 100% alone and isn't necessarily intended to. But it's a delightful you know, thing to read. Mm. And it was a pleasure just to read something with no other reason to, than just to enjoy it and then set it aside and go, huh, I've read that. Uh, that That is a, a pleasure. Um, I think the other trap for, particularly for yourself, for a reviewer, is that locusts, and this is just how we go because of columns, and organization is we tend to feed you more of what you've had before. Yeah. You know, yeah. If you read Neil Stevenson and you like Neil Stevenson and we get a Neil Stevenson book, we're probably going to send you the new Neil Stevenson book thinking you'll be interested in reviewing it. And then there's this process where I guess, you know, I mean, and any reviewer, any reader generally is quite happy to see more, you know, more of those, that, that sort of thing. But to find that space, that time to review what's being sent to you and kind of go, yes, no, I mean, there's got to be a point every month where you're going, what am I going to review next month? What's going to make my column? And how do I find stuff to remain interested in, particularly after? And it's an interesting thing. I'm still uh, coping structurally with the departure of Farron Miller from Locus. Mm-hmm. I've not found anybody to replace Farron's taste block in the mag- you know, in, 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 in reviewing. It's essentially Farron. a mainstream literary taste eye. Uh, oh, but also no, epic, epic fantasy with literary bent, that kind of thing. Okay, no, that kind of thing. Aaron would, would, would happily review and do a great job with. Um, and I, I look at sort of what, say, Russell Letson, who reviews a particular kind of hard science fiction typically, and would say that there, he's open to anything at all, but when we pitch things to him, it tends to be that sort of stuff that he goes for. I mean, he's the guy who's going to review Stephen Baxter, and he's the guy who's going to review Peter Hamilton and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it must be a thing for you trying to keep fresh, hard to resist your own previous preferences well it's a little bit of both i mean for one thing yeah if there's a uh pattern of somebody whose career i've followed and there are a handful of writers who for various reasons i've read almost everything by uh and i want to keep up what's going on and and also some of them are simply writers that i find enormously entertaining i think this year i've reviewed uh maybe it's not out yet but my I will have reviewed three novels by Lavi Tidar. Um, and I always look forward to the next one, and it's always entertaining. And he's one of a handful of writers that I would be buying the books from if I didn't uh, have to review them. But every time I'm getting a new Lavi Tidar book or a new, I, I get uh, a lot of uh, Nadia Korfor books because I've been reading her since uh, Zara the Windseeker. Then I'm also aware of the fact that that's some new writer that I'm not discovering. That's somebody I haven't heard of. That's somebody who. Uh, maybe I need to catch up with uh, Toshi Onyebushi, for example. You do. You do need and to I do, absolutely do. Um, Look, I mean, I think one thing, though, and this is the other countervailing thing, which I'm sure Andrew would be on top of, is there's a pressure to have context when you review. We, I mean, I want the reviewers who are reviewing Fritz Locus to bring more than an uninformed reading to the book they're going to review for us. Now, on one hand, in fairness, that's making sure that if you're going to read review book two, you've read book one. So there's that. Yeah. But it's also that thing where if you're going to review Toshi Onyabuchi and you're going to read review Goliath, which is coming out in January or February of next year, mm-hmm. I think, it's important that you've read Riot Baby. Yeah. It's probably important you've at least looked at War Girls and Rebel Sisters because there's going to be some thematic cro- crossover, right. maybe some of his short fiction. You know, with with Nettie, you know, there's uh, I think Nor is now in Ark, which is uh, Nettie's next next novel. It's the next adult novel. Yeah. Now, in reading Nor, I assume you're going to want to have looked at and been familiar with Who Fears Death and the Akata books and the Binti books and Lagoon, mm. because they all talk about the kind of themes that a writer like Nettie, who was developed into a major voice in the field, is is pursuing. Now, I don't know if that means that you need to have read all. 
15 or whatever it must be Neil Stevenson novels, which each could break down into four more novels. But, you know, you need to, <laughs> you need that extra kind of um, context to really make the reviews work. And I've, the thing I look at, one of the first things I look for more and more when, when I get a review to edit is to kind of go, well, have you read like anything else by this person? Where's, give me context. Is this a first novel? Is mm -hmm. it a ninth novel? Is this the book that harks back to the other book? Are you familiar with that? You know, uh, when you reviewed Fall or Dodge and Howe, had you read Reemdy? Um, did you realize how, you know, maybe the broke cycle interacted with something else? Blah, 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 blah. So. Well, a, a good example is a, book, which, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just reviewing in, I guess, October, uh, which is The Hood, the Lobby Tidar novel, which we talked with him about briefly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there, there, there are d distinct uh, callbacks to By Force Alone, his earlier novel about Arthurian. So, so, so there's a connection there. There are connections in his other novels uh, that cover everything from superheroes to the Holocaust to Martian colonies. Um, and it's some of this, I think he's having fun himself, and some of it yeah. is, isn't really important. On the one hand, you want to have that context. On the other hand, if you're writing a review, you don't want the reader to feel like you have to take an entrance exam before you can read this novel. No, you don't need to no. have read anything. I think most writers would, would, would say this, unless it's the second or third or fourth volume in a series, that they're not... Uh, trying to they're, they're certainly trying to build careers but they certainly want new writers for new readers for every book too well i guess this is the challenge in finding your, your reviewer and being the reviewer that you're looking for because arguably if you're going to review the hood by levy tidhar first of all it is useful to have read by force alone which is the first yes. of the antimatter quartet but it's also plain that it's not a bad thing to be familiar with ivanhoe which is probably a foundational text for the hood Mm -hmm. It's not a bad idea to be f familiar with The Darkening Garden by John Clute, which is a philosophical, theoretical, foundational work for the book, and so on. You don't have to be, have to be familiar, but it informs how you would review and discuss the book, maybe, because it is what it is. It's, I mean, uh, as we talked about on the podcast before, um, Tidhar is, very, is greatly influenced by Clute's theories in The Darkening Garden, mm -hmm. the Robin Hood story myth whatever i mean there are variations on it that he touches on in uh in the hood but the, 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 for, that matter, for that matter the novel the escapement literally has a passage through an area called the thickening which is a lit, lit theory concept that clute came up with in the darkening garden so he's literalizing literary theory which is now that i think about it utterly bizarre yeah, yeah. even though i mean i think i mean just quickly, what I think the Hood is most about is a changing of world philosophy, mm. not about Robin Hood. It's about the move from a pagan worldview to a Christian worldview. And the most critical character in the book is Birdie, who looks forward through time mm -hmm. and sees the post-Christian worldview and you know the, the you know the the, razor, the, you know, the, the rise of an uh, an atheistic world. And that's why Nottingham is a polder holding out against the Christian worldview that we see the Crusades and everything else. That's what I think the core of the book is. Me, I think Robin Robin Hood is a little bit of misdirection in some ways. The, the least thing in some ways the Hood about is Robin. Robin Hood. The, the book is well. We, we're spending a lot of time talking about a book that is now. Sorry, yeah, but uh, but, you, but yeah, Robin Hood. Any is, minute now. Is, yeah. But I mean, I, I think you're right, and I think there is a sense, and this is one of the reasons why books in series make a difference. Sometimes there is a sense of historical movement. Uh, Joe Abercrombie's now mm. trilogy, now completed trilogy, yes. introduces history into what has traditionally been a kind of ahistorical fantasy landscape. Industrialization comes to the Middle Ages, essentially. And the displacement, which is very similar to the displacement you're talking about with moving into a, a, a post-Christian society or a secular society, is something which, um, which he's clearly interested in and which I think is, uh, makes that set of books, when I've not read the last one, so... Uh, but it strikes me that is a set of books that has a clear idea of historical progression in it. I think the same thing's happening with the antimatter of Britain from Tidar. Yeah, and I yeah. think, and I think you see, uh, you see a lot of that. Actually, we talked about Gene Wolfe. That's buried back in the subtexts and the and, and the mm. backstories of all the Book of the New Sun things. The entire next several million years of history is implied, but you just have to look for it. 
So, so I was just going to say, I, I normally don't like to read multi-volume books, but when they're doing something interesting like that, then you can understand why a series is the appropriate length for some of these. It, it can be. I mean, the Age of Madness, the Abercrombie thing is terrific. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, the Wisdom of Crowds, which I think you have now, right? You have an arc of that. I have an arc of it. And yeah, ER. I don't. I'm not jealous. It's anyway. Um, what I find interesting about Joe is I've never met anybody who's more resistant to talking analytically about his own work than than Joe Abercrombie. <laughs> he's utterly allergic to it. He's like, this looks substantial. And he goes, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like, and you're trying to do this, are you? <laughs> Just entertaining, and you're like, okay, fine. But you're right. Uh, sometimes you know, the trilogy and, and you, need, you, need, you need space and it's interesting to read them. Sometimes We're waffling now. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. But it, it was, as as you recall from the couple of times he's been in the past, it's, it was difficult to get Gene Wolfe to talk about his stories other than, it's, you know, I just, I thought I'd put that in there. And and you know that he's thinking, he's thinking more than you think he's thinking. And he's thinking more than he thinks he's thinking. So that there's a lot <laughs> of stuff that goes into his novels, which just has to do with his being brilliant. I suspect the same thing's going on with Joe Abercrombie. Um, yeah, so- I, I think you can see that also, I mean, he's matured uh, Abercrombie as a novelist greatly yeah. over the last 20 years, as you would hope somebody would. Um, and so, it, you know, this series is arguably within his broader sort of first law universe. One of the most important things, he, most, one of the most interesting things he's done is, that he's done. I mean, I thought yeah. the, the Shattered Sea trilogy that he did, half a king, half the world, half a war, was right. absolutely brilliant. And then to have come back with this, it's been really impressive. These three books are really good. I cannot wait to read The Wisdom of Crowds. And if you're listening, Gillian Redfern, you have my email address. No. Um, yeah, so I don't know if any of that answers Andrew Liptak's question. It probably doesn't, but at least we've tried to engage with it a little bit, and I feel good about well, that. I mean, there's a broader part of the question which is reading the book at the wrong time or the right book at the right time, which is something you don't have a choice when you're reviewing. No. You're reviewing what comes across. Uh, and there are books that I've, there are books I don't want to reread because I read them at a time when I was really impressed by them. And I'm afraid that's not going to hold up. Uh, number sure. one, since everybody's talking about it now for the next several months at least, is Dune. I was really impressed by Dune. I was even impressed by Dune Messiah. By the time he got to God Emperor of Dune, I began to think, eh, maybe it's not, maybe it's not as well thought out as I thought it was. Or, um, I mean, I could make an argument that Dune Messiah sort of unpacks some of the stuff in Dune and sort of unties some of the knots that Dune mm-hmm. tied itself up in. The problem is, and there was an interesting post on Facebook by Samuel R. Delaney about this, that he simply found the book unreadable. And I've got an edition of it, and I look at it every once in a while. Herbert was not a prose master, exactly. No. And, and, it's, and it's, some it's, of the it's, most it's, lyrical stuff there is lifted from somewhere else, you know. Well, yeah. The, 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 Sufi philosophy or whatever, you know. Well, Fear yeah, is the mind. For that right. matter, the T.E. Lawrence and so forth and so on. I mean, yeah, yeah. in his other fiction, there, I, I actually liked Herbert's fiction because he was an old-fashioned writer of ideas. Uh, there was a novel called The Santa Roga Barrier, which was, in, which featured a product called Jasper's Beer. And you realize he's talking about the philosophy of Carl Jasper's. And so he, he, he would sort of just blatantly uh, throw whatever philosophy he had been reading into his fiction. And as a kid, I was just fascinated by that. Then you realize mm. that for most of his career, he didn't really write that well. And would I really be sucked into a, a long novel like Dune? Let alone all the other Dune novels uh, today, and I, 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 I seriously doubt it. I think that you know I read Dune at the right know, time, and I'm glad I did. Oh, look, there's a whole bunch of science fiction I read at the right time. Yeah, you know, I mean, I read I read Dune when I was in my teens, and that probably was about right. I'm mm-hmm. fast. I am. I will. I do plan to go back and read it before I see the film, just to refresh my memory, and also to see whether some of the things I've been reading about it lately hold true. You know, I mean, yeah. someone was saying one of the things that you find when you go back to reread Dune is that a lot of the description that you imagine being there is not there. Mm-hmm. That he actually has very little actual description of what's happening and leaves it to you to fill in. And that's maybe one of its strengths rather than one of its weaknesses. And it helps keep the book fresher than you might have expected. I think it's one the, of the things, the other- that, just as a follow-up to that, it's something a good science fiction writers have always known how to do. I mean, there, there would be uh, 
you're right. You get very few descriptions of sand because basically how many ways can you describe a desert? Um, you get the sandworms are pretty spectacular, but mostly you get descriptions of people's reaction to them. This is one of the things that science fiction writers have always done that creates an automatic problem for a science fiction filmmaker. Just before we were talking, I put on the first few minutes of Elysium, Neil Blomkins. Mm -hmm. And it's like all those really expensive, well-budgeted uh, science fiction films, including his first uh, film, District 9, in that they're, they're over-designed and under-imagined. Uh, yeah. They, they yeah. look great. And, and when you start looking past all the clutter of the detail or all the kibble, uh, they're really simplistic, old-fashioned stories. The other thing that I kind of mean to go and have a look at, and maybe I will, I, mean, I sort of think I will, is we're three weeks out or so from Apple dropping the Foundation series. Right. Which I gather uh, and, they've, they've had to invent almost from scratch from what I'm reading. Well, I think we're all talking about that. We, we're now going to go find out. I mean, they've gender flipped one of the protagonists, which is absolutely fine. Fine. And made the cast more diverse. And they've structurally apparently had to find a way to have characters that can be present long enough so that they can show you dramatically the arc of time they're trying to deal with. I mean, because Foundation deals with a millennia or something uh, of, of, of time. How do you make that work dramatically? I mean, apparently, according to the, the, the stuff from the press, there's supposed to be eight, se eight seasons of this show if it works. Well, presumably they could do that, but they're filling in almost everything. I mean, in, in a sense, it's a galactic empire, and there, there are galactic empires before Foundation. There have been many galactic empires since then. As one of my students pointed out to me, the one time I tried to teach not the whole trilogy, but the, even the first novel. Uh, at, at the end of the opening class discussion, he said, do you realize nothing happens in this novel at all? This novel is about people talking about what's going to happen, and then they talk about what happened, and then they talk about what went wrong with what happened, but you never see anything happen. And he was pretty much right. <laughs> the, the entire yes. galactic empire part of this has to be dramatized from scratch. Uh, Asimov, yeah. frankly, wasn't that interested in it. He was interested in, in promoting his historical theories and his... Uh, yeah. And looking at the most recent trailer for Foundation, it looks as though they're going to attempt to show some of the things that he didn't show just so they can give you more drama in it. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, it's sure. interesting to see that sort of stuff tried to make work and also to see how it works in the contemporary media environment where you're, you're putting out a 10-episode season, dropping it all at once, and then mm -hmm. hoping that it does well enough because you spent $27 billion producing it that you can do the next season and the next season. I don't know actually who's behind this. I don't know who's writing it. I don't know uh, how much it has to do I'm with Asimov. Um, I, th I think it's like Ronald Moore or somebody, isn't it? Isn't the guy who did um, the Battlestar Galactica series or okay. something? Okay, well, that, that, not that, sure, that's, that's but... encouraging. Um, I could be completely wrong. Do not take that to the bank, but I think it's it's sort of someone along those lines and there's some Asimov connections and, and all that. So yeah, you know, it will well, be interesting. Uh, Asimov was never interested in writing uh, characters. He was never interested in writing drama or action or adventure, particularly. I mean, uh, if you look at what happened to the iRobot stories, which had some quick logical puzzles and a couple of very sentimental stories about sweet robots saving little kids. Um, mm -hmm. Apart from then, that turns into iRobot, which, as a movie, completely reverses Asimov's attitude toward robots and makes them a, a horrible threat of you know of, of, of robo robo apocalypse kind of thing. Um, the whole point of the iRobot stories was that robots are our friends. They're nice. They're they're programmable. They can't they can't they can, they can't overcome well, the programming really. Um, well, so yeah, one of the things was anyway. I mean, we are now officially rambling. Ah, okay. Well, that's what we're supposed to do. Is it? Okay. It has been a very rambly discussion. I hope everybody doesn't mind. Well, I, 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 I'm still haunted by Andrew's question, uh, which is one that, because it's one that bothers me uh, a lot. And I, I think it's true of any kind of fiction, though. It's kind of, of any kind of reading. When I imagine reading non, just spending a, a six months, a year, not reading any science fiction, what would I read? I probably would end up doing what a lot of our friends 
the writers, novelists do, and that probably would be reading a lot of nonfiction. Because oh, I think interesting. part of the appeal of science fiction, when I started out reading it, and this is one of the arguments I used to make to my dad even, is you learn stuff from it. This is Gernsback's argument, but you know, reading science fiction is the closest thing you can get to actually not reading fiction at all because it's got science in it. Now, I was making that up out of whole cloth when I said that, but my dad fell yeah. for it. Um, and, and And so there's... Some of the appeal of, of of science fiction, I think, is the appeal of nonfiction. And I think this is one of the reasons that you have uh, a writer like Asimov, whose uh, clearest, most coherent writing was his nonfiction. Yeah. I mean, look, I was interested. There was, a, there was an article that was published or a post that was, was put on Tor.com in the last couple of weeks, last week or so. My year reading Le Guin. Uh-huh. And it was someone said, you know, they barely read any Le Guin. And they'd done this before with some other writers, and they'd spent the year, and they'd gone back and reread or read uh, everything. From I think that they found themselves reading, I think the Left Hand of Darkness for the first time, just by mm-hmm. chance, as, as as people still do, as, as odd as it might seem in this world that there are people reading, you know, sort of the, you know these books for the first time, and the immersive experience of then going on and reading twenty six other Le Guin books, which is actually a pretty kind of natural, I think, thing to do for a reader who's not stuck in our world. And I think finding ways to give yourself that freedom becomes important for people who are doing what we're doing. So you've got a chance to actually keep keep whatever makes you reading alive and make it not a rote mechanical thing. I think that's you know? true. And um, I think one of the things that, uh, one of the things that I found kind of liberating and fascinating uh, was when the Library of America started publishing the Le Guin um, oeuvre with the Orsinian tales. And I'd read mm-hmm. one or two of them. I'd, I'd never read Malifrenia. I hadn't read all the Orsinian tales. They fit together. It's not really fantasy, but it's an imaginary Central European country with an imaginary history, so you can mm-hmm. view it as a... They're lovely stories. And then there was a collection uh, later on of hers called Sea Road, which is, deals with generations of yes. women along the Oregon coast. Absolutely lovely stories. So Great one book, of yeah. the values of having these things around is that I, I don't necessarily i'm not necessarily a believer in systematically going on one of the great rereads like uh, and, and tour.com is very big about the great reread it's like okay we're going to climb everest for the fourth time and i don't really want to do that i don't uh, I, I i don't want to engage on a frank herbert reread because a lot of it isn't going to hold up very well um, I'm, I'm torn right there's a couple that i kind of want to do it's like little part of me goes maybe i should find time and I could probably carve it out in a year somewhere to read, you know, like the, the extended, the book of the long sun, you read the book of the new yeah. sun, they're all 13 books or whatever it is. And having drifted out of it at some point, I'm sort of tempted to go and read CJ Cherry's foreigner series, mm-hmm. which extends out to 23 books or something now, I think. Um, I don't know if I will find that time. And I, look, there's, there's, there was Le Guin I've not read. I've not read all of it by any means. I read a, a chunk of her work. But, and mm-hmm. I found myself, this was uh, Matt Bell, who's the author of a book, Earth's Appleseed. Appleseed. Yeah, at the moment, uh, who wrote, wrote this for I'll try and put the link into the show notes when we, when we send it. And yeah, I'm looking back and going like, yeah, I, I don't think it would be a bad thing to sit down and read The Left Hand of Darkness again, go through and read Earthsea. I mean, he, I... I read Earthsea in a really odd way. I actually ended up reading Tahanu first. Uh huh. Actually, I did too, uh, because I was too old for Earthsea when it came out, and Tahanu was a big deal when uh, I hadn't quite started reviewing. I love Tahanu. I did I too. Love Tahanu. It's fantastic. Uh, but uh, but, and but the think- thing is, the thing is, reading Tahanu first, you go back and you're sort of auto-correcting Earthsea as you're reading it because you know that she's given you these alternative perspectives, which even she didn't didn't have in mind when she was writing the original trilogy. Oh, no. I mean, the thing, the, the point that, that Matt Bell makes in his piece on Tor, which is completely right, is what's fascinating about Le Guin is the intellectual honesty of her work. Yes. This idea that, yes, I, uh, when I was 30 years old and wrote that, I was that person with that experience and that knowledge and that perspective. And now I have gone on and I've thought more, learnt more, heard more. And now I have this perspective and I can bring that to my work. And she was willing to bring it to something like Earthsea, which is such a major mm-hmm. work, you know? So it's, it's, it's interesting. It's very interesting. But well, I mean, we are over a, our, yeah. we're, we're, I'm trying we're, to wind us up here, Gary. We're over the hour. Okay. Okay. But I just, it, it makes you wish that 
it makes you wish that C.S. Lewis had been somebody other than C.S. Lewis, so he could have gone back and revisited <laughs> Narnia with, with all the problematic you know, stuff. A book I'd love to read uh, is, uh, I think it's The Stone Table, which is, I, I think that's the book, and that's by Francis Sp- Spufford, Spufford, who's just been put for the Booker Prize, you might be aware. Mm-hmm. The Stone Table is an unpublished Narnia sequel. I would love to see that. Now, I believe that there are co- copies circulating around amongst people we know, like Adam Roberts and James Bradley. Mm-hmm. But um, for very, for reasons you could imagine, there's not going to be a major reimagining of Narnia published without no. the direct input of the Lewis estate. But it would be fascinating to see what it is because there are there are flaws. As our friend, friend you know, Neil Gaiman highlighted in uh, was it The Problem with Susan. The Problem with Susan, which is a... a, a... You know, and so on, so yes. But, but you're right, again, probably at the end of time. But 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 again, that's one of those things where you know the the book probably needs fixing in some ways, but it still doesn't take away from the magic of encountering oh, it no. when you did. Even when you realize, oh. as I did, that at some point at the end of the line, the witch in the road wardrobe, you're, you're being brainwashed. I'm actively being brainwashed. And even then, as a young adult, I wasn't a kid. I was thinking, I'm not buying this, but it's still a good story. Yeah, I probably was happy to have, I mean, I was, I think, still in my, in single digit years when I read Narnia, <laughs> which is probably the right time to read it. Probably I have felt Absolutely. a great desire to reread it over the last 35 or 40 years. You know, it's like, yeah, some things are best left, as, as, as the great Joe Walton refers, hidden from behind the, you know, the, the, you know, the protection of the suck fairy. Yeah, exactly. And on that cheery note, I guess. We're done. We're at the end of the hour. We've rambled incoherently, more than usual, I guess. But anyway, until the next time, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. Yeah, we're kind of sorry for that.